Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoy it. But first, I want to ask you a question. Are you someone who has high upside potential in your business and yet sometimes that goal is just hard to get to and maybe the only way you've seen to get to it is just to make more calls, you know, work harder? Well, if you're fed up with using old strategies to solve new problems, then I might have a solution. It's my five-day million-dollar seller challenge. We meet one hour a day in a coaching intensive where I will teach you five moves that you can make to scale your results without working harder. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or go to milliondollarsellerchallenge.com. Welcome back to the Bill Kasky Podcast. Really glad you're here. I have a special guest today that I think you'll really enjoy. Before we get to our episode, make sure that you go to BillKasky.com to sample a flavor of some of our videos and audios and other content. Alan is a specialist in coaching high achievers at the sales level, the executive level, and he brings a really unique and I think thoughtful and beneficial line of reasoning to high achievement and self-worth and self-value. And I think we can all learn from this interview. Now, I will admit that the audio is not up to our normal standards. It was done via Zoom, and that isn't the best resolution of audio. So hope you'll excuse it. It's not bad. His uh, audio is fine. Mine's a little crackly, but I hope you enjoy the interview today with Alan Allard. We're speaking today with uh, my special guest, Alan Allard. You can find out more about Alan at Alan Allard. That's A-L-L-A-R-D.com. He's written a book called Seven Secrets to Enlightened Happiness. You can find that on Amazon. And I first learned about uh, you, Alan, from Twitter, believe it or not. I had followed you, and I think you'd followed me, and some of the posts you made resonated with me and probably congruent with some of the things that I was thinking about. And so you and I spoke here a week ago and we had a nice conversation. We thought, you know what, let's turn this into rather than a hard driving interview, just a discussion about what we see in the market with happiness, Mm -hmm. with mental health, with emotional health, with high achievers and kind of wrap that all into one nice package. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. And yeah, we did meet over Twitter. I was really uh, liking the things that I was reading from you. Then I went to your website really like the way you expressed some of your concepts in to what makes successful sales or not. So yeah, it's great talking to you. So the uh, just quick bit of your background, give us a minute on how you came to be. You can go back as far as you want, but keep it to a minute, a couple minutes, just how'd you get here today and what's been your path? Yeah, I had a little unusual path. I started out in the ministry, believe it or not, only took about three years to find out that was not for me. So I went into sales, was with Motorola for a while. And my wife said, you know, why aren't you doing anything with your graduate degree in psychology? So to make a long story short. You forgot about that. Whoops, <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, oh. I, I said, wow, you can't make any money doing that, you know? And so, and then I, I realized, you know, that's not really a good reason. Let me, let me figure a solution to that. So I, I went into an entry-level mental health job, then started a private practice part-time Six months later after that, went full-time. And so I spent 12 years in the Chicago suburbs uh, in Naperville uh, as a therapist. Yeah, it's funny how, and we even talked about that, I think, on our phone call about how psychology gets a bad rap. Like, well, how can you make money there? And when would you ever use psychology? And I always always tell these parents who say their kids went to school and they majored in psychology and they they were so against that and they wanted to do 
them to do something practical. And I'm like, what could be more practical than a major in psychology? You'll use it every day of your life, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it, and it just blows my mind that the world of sales has really delved very little into, you know, what psychology can tell us about how to not only increase sales, but to love doing it along the way much easier. Well, let's get into that because that's uh, the, the gist of this conversation is you work with, you coach people, you coach leaders, executives, probably some salespeople, but it, I, I always feel like it doesn't really matter what role or function they play. They're human right. beings and you coach them. And so give me, give us a sense of two or three things that people come to you with when they first approach you to consider whether you could help them with coaching. What, what are a couple of issues people yeah. have today common? Probably uh, the two biggest issues are a a salesperson that's doing really, really well. They're really, you know, hitting their numbers or exceeding their numbers, but something is going not so well at home. So it could be in their significant other relationship, which is most often the case. And they're finally realizing if I, if I don't give some attention to that, I'm, I'm going to lose, you know, this part of my life. And so they come to me wanting help and they find out that, you know, what makes for success in one area of life is very similar to what makes for success in another area. For instance, in sales, you know, if you're just going to prospects, wanting something and needing it, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because people don't care about that. Well, that's the way it is in, in a relationship, marriage or whatnot. If all we're thinking about, what can I get out of this or what's the minimum I can put into it, it's not going well. So they come to me because there's something in their personal life not going well. Maybe they're feeling burned out. Maybe they've lost their, you know, sense of excitement for what they do. So that's probably one of the biggest things. And then the second one is they're really successful at work, but they're, they're saying is there's got to be more. I mean, for years, I said, if I could just get, you know, these accolades, if I could just, you know, hit these goals, I, everything will be perfect. And then they wake up and, and they're saying, wow, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go to work today. And so they've lost that sense of, fulfillment, that sense of meaning, that sense of what drove them in the first place, because they were relying on the wrong things to drive them. Okay, so we're going to get into that, because I, I want to okay. talk to you a little bit about what the wrong things are and what the right things are. What role does age play in this? As someone who's in uh, middle to late stages of the work that I do, I'm, I'm uh, in the early 60s, we'll, we'll just say, just between <laughs> us guys. Yeah, I'll go with that with me. And I've noticed that other people who are in that same age range, let's just say 50 and above or 55 mm -hmm. and above, complain sometimes about they feel like they're losing their edge. They feel like mm -hmm. they're losing their ambition level. And and things that used to be, they'd see the mountain and they'd say, man, I can climb that freaking mountain. And right. now they see the mountain and say, you know, let's let's have a beer and a cigar and talk about climbing that mountain. Yeah and, yeah. and I'm wondering what role age plays and can that be overcome or is that just biological? And it's like, once you hit 60, you're, you're on your way down. I don't buy that. I don't believe that, but I think we've got to find mm -hmm. other coping mechanisms. If you're in that place where things, maybe you're just not as ambitious as you used to be. Tell, tell me about your thoughts on that. I think the ambition turns toward different things. So in the beginning, you know, the ambition might be, I want a certain amount of money, a salary, uh, I want a certain title. I want to be recognized by my peers and by senior leadership as, uh, you know, I am person to, to, to watch. I am the person to, to emulate. And so that's what people want to achieve. But then again, as I said, they get there and they say, well, this is not making me feel the way that I thought it would. I thought that I would have nothing but 
absolute respect for myself. I, I thought that I would wake up, you know, excited about the day, but that's not happening. So what you mentioned about age, sometimes it does take someone getting into midlife or a little bit later for them to realize what they thought was going to make them happy, fulfilled, content, give them peace of mind, because that's what we were promised. Those things would. They find out that it doesn't. I think, oh, now I'm forgetting the the name of the author, but he's, oh, Sean Aker. He wrote several books on happiness, and he said the, the old formula was be successful and you'll be happy. And that's what pretty much is still being taught, believe it or not. It, it's changing some. But really, the truth is that happiness is a better predictor of success yeah. than success is of happiness. Yeah, I wrote a post the other day on LinkedIn uh, doing these little graphics, and I, I talked about the idea of joy. And we all have things that we love doing in our work, and we all have things that we despise. And hopefully the list mm-hmm. of the love doings is much longer. But I, I said in the post, and I as I, as I hit submit, I thought, or send, I thought, I'm not sure this is true or not, but I, I hit it anyway. And my house didn't burn down last night. So apparently <laughs> good. What did it say? It said something about if you don't have joy in what you do, not in the results, like, like at the end of the year, if you don't have joy in the work itself, find another job. Because at some point, you're going to be unfulfilled. And then all your sites are going to be, well, I don't like my job, but I'm making 250 grand. I'm certainly mm-hmm. not going to give that up today. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, the phrase life is short, you know, is, is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Uh, it's true. And so if, and, and that's where age comes in. After you've done something for a decade or particularly for 20 years, if it's not fulfilling you, if you're not, if, if you wouldn't do it for free. See, I think that's the litmus test. I've heard it, that before. Yeah. yeah what would I do? What, if I had $20 million in the bank, would I wake up wanting to do what I'm doing now? The closer we can get to that, the, the more life gives back to us. Mm-hmm. What, what's your sense of, uh, we're talking today, by the way, with Alan Allard. Uh, you can reach Alan at A-L-A-N-A-L-L-A-R-D.com. And uh, he's written uh, several things. One is a book on happiness called Seven Secrets to Enlightened Happiness. Uh, you can find out more about that on Amazon, I presume. There is a lot today, and then I want to get into the high performer profile too, but there's a okay. lot of people who are telling me today, and I don't want to get political with this, but in a way, it's all everything is political. This idea of you don't get to stand up and say what you believe anymore uh, because there's too much danger. Uh, if I stand up and say, you know what, I'm not okay with this, you might find yourself out of a job. Forget about the, I don't want to get into the rules and regs around that. It's more mm-hmm. about if I'm told, no, you can't say something, you can't stand up, you can't voice your beliefs. Does that take a toll on you at some point? Or is it just filed away under, you know what, that's business, that's different? D- doesn't that, doesn't at some point that take a toll? I think it um, uh, does for most people. And it depends a lot about your, you know, personality makeup. Some people are less affected by that than others. But in terms of the ones that would be, uh, you know, it's hard to go in and pretend to be something that you're not, to ignore parts of yourself, things that, are really important to you. Or the worst thing is feeling that someone is controlling your life. That's what will really eat people up is not taking ownership of their life and having the autonomy that everyone needs to thrive. That's so true. I, yeah, I was getting, when is, once you said take control, I thought of the word autonomous mm-hmm. about 
what really inspires us and what inspires us is to feel like we have some control over our future and what we do every day and how much yeah. we earn and how successful we are. And if we are being held back for some reason in any area, we lose that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that, that'll, that'll kill us quicker than anything else because that makes us passive. And the more passive we are, the uh, less powerful we feel, the more powerless we feel. And the more powerless we feel, the more we just stay in survival mode. Well, I see this a lot, too, and moving out of the political thing. I see this a lot with organizations who have sales teams. And a guy like me comes in, company pays me money to come in and advise their team on how to generate more prospects or whatever. And I say, you know what? I think you need to be writing and producing more video and content on LinkedIn and then tagging people. I've got a system that I use. Mm -hmm. And the VP of sales says, oh, no, we're not going to do that. No, no, they need to be out there making cold calls, not writing freaking articles on LinkedIn. Right. And everybody in the in the company kind of says, yeah, well, we're going to listen to him. Occasionally, I have somebody who raises their hand and says, boss, no. I've already proven that I've written seven articles on LinkedIn. You don't even know about it. And I've generated a million dollars worth of clients from it. Why are you telling me no? It's very rare that someone has that kind of courage to step up and say, no, this is, this is exactly right. True. So what you're saying is being autonomous could also be, it's, it's also in the process of being managed. And leaders sometimes don't let their people be autonomous. No, for, you know, for all that companies talk about, about wanting innovators, <laughs> And, you know, people that uh, are, are, you know, self-directed, they, they really don't mean that. No. They, they, <laughs> they want what the school and educational system wants. And that is a, you know, I want you to sit there, be quiet, listen, and then do exactly like you're told. You know, that's how you're going to get ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I'm exaggerating there to some extent, but there's there's definitely truth in that. Yeah. So let's talk about the high achiever today. And because I know that was one of the things we wanted to get to. What are some things that a high achiever and, and by high achiever, again, maybe by job function, maybe mm-hmm. by income, let's say it's someone who's earning 100 to 200,000 a year or more in an executive position or a high level sales professional. What are some of the things they should look out for for themselves so they don't get down into this? tunnel of despair, especially during the weirdness that we're in right now and will be in for the next year or two. What are some indicators that, wait a minute, you're going down the wrong path here? I would say two primary things, Bill. One is uh, for them to ask themselves the question, where am I getting my sense of worth and value from? And number two, where am I getting my ongoing flow of happiness from? So with the first Again, what we're taught is that we're only as good as we perform. It's what I call performance theology, not from a religious standpoint, but from a performance standpoint. You know, we admire people who break the records. We admire people that achieve uh, astounding results. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that has nothing to do with our worth. Our worth in the marketplace, yes. But our our worth in the universe or in humanity, it has nothing to do with that. So where am I getting my worth from? And one of the biggest mistakes that high performers make is they found out early in life is, wow, people give me a lot of attention. I get a lot of praise and I get rewarded when I perform better than everyone else. That makes me somebody. That makes me special. The sad thing is, you know, that's why we look at, you know, maybe a homeless person on the street. And instead of looking at that person and seeing immense value, you know, we see someone that maybe doesn't generate any respect. and, and 
you know, think about all the, the, the people in the nursing homes. Think about all the people that, you know, haven't achieved things in traditional success. And we've just been conditioned to ignore those people as if they have no contribution. High performers need to ask, where am I getting my worth? Our worth is innate and it's unchangeable. If I perform better, I'm not worth more as a human being. Okay, well, let's let's dig just a brief amount into that. So I, okay. I wrote down here, as you talked about, where do I get my worth? I was writing down, well, what are the elements of worth? Well, one, and it's all external. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I know you're saying that's not where you get your worth from external factors, but it's money, it's praise, it's acknowledgement, it's hey, uh, Alan, you really matter to this organization. Boy, that felt good. Then we get starved for it. And then we don't get it because people are looking for their own validation. They don't have time or energy to give it to you. Right. What instead of external, how does one get one's worth internally? What what can we do? Is it is it mindfulness practice? Is it journaling? What's the what's the bridge? Yeah, that's that's a question that everyone has to answer for themselves, and it's not maybe an easy one. I don't come at it from a religious standpoint. I come at it just from a pragmatic standpoint. My conclusion is that every human being has innate worth simply because they are a human being. If I were to go up to someone that that we would agree, okay, they're not really contributing to society. Maybe they're in a coma, and this is a a, a, a terrible illustration. But it gets to the point, you know, if I were to say, OK, well, let's just take that person out. Let's let's end their life now. Everyone would look at me like, what What are you talking about? You're a monster. You can't just kill someone. Well, why not? Because on one level, we recognize that everyone has worth regardless of their contribution. And the same way with a baby. You know, we, we you know, most people adore babies. They talk about how you know incredible they are. Well, what are they doing to contribute? Nothing. So there's innate worth. And as long as we keep looking for externals to feel good about ourselves, to feel that we're good enough, we're going to be always trying to prove to ourselves that we're good. Can I use that that clip on Twitter? Ellen Allard says babies are of no value and should be disposed of. (laughs) Okay, there you go. That's a great example of taking a soundbite out of context. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that would not be good. Please don't. your, Your point, though, is is proven in that, well, we would never think of that. Right. And yet there is a certain amount of self-value that we refuse to give ourselves self-respect, self-value. We, we get overweight, we eat improperly. We don't take care of our bodies. We don't take care of our relationships. We don't take care of our own mind. I could go on with, yeah, we all say that, oh no, I really respect myself, but you wouldn't Mm -hmm. know it looking at me. Or if you follow me around all day, hopefully not me, but our worth comes from how we treat ourselves too, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, 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 how we treat ourselves either nurtures that worth or erodes it. So that's a good point. And that's why, you know, I, I tell my clients all the time, uh, and this is hard for high performers to wrap their mind around, but I say that self-criticism is never warranted, ever. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is I believe that everyone does the best they can, all things considered in the moment. Now, most people would tend to agree with that, but then when they make a mistake, that flies out the window. Or when someone does something that they think that they shouldn't do, that goes out the window. Now, I'm not talking about extreme cases, you know, in the world where people would do unthinkable things. I'm talking about the average person. Why is it ever helpful or useful or healthy to criticize myself? Give myself feedback? Yes. Learn something from it? Yes. But to criticize in the sense of, well, why did you do that? How could you have done that? What's the matter with you? Yeah. That all yeah. erodes self-worth tremendously. Yeah. 10, 15, 30, 40 years of that. Yes. If it's not, if it's not 
dealt with creates someone who's 55 years old, kind of hunched over, doesn't want to take risk, is afraid of the world, cowers in fear, because it's just been years and years of playing the same movie exactly. to themselves. Yeah, over time, you know, that's what, you know, can kill the human spirit. Absolutely. So let's talk about your second thing. So one was, where do I get my self-worth? We're talking about high achievers mm -hmm. here with Alan Allard. Your other one was, where do I get my happiness or inspiration? Yeah. Tell me about that. All right. Now, I'm going to say that in, in this context, work is important. There's no doubt about it. You know, what we do for work is important, but all work is meaningful. And so if we have to be doing a particular kind of work or excelling in a, on a particular level in order for us to feel happy about ourselves, happy about life in general, then something is amiss. So where do I look for my happiness? And I think research, the longest ongoing study at Harvard uh, on happiness uh, seemed to conclude that the key factor for happiness would lie in our relationships. Now, I would say, beginning with self, what's my relationship with myself? Am I supportive? Do I give myself unconditional positive regard? Do I respect myself because I have innate worth? But then what about the people around me? If high performers are trying to, to get their happiness from their success, what are they going to do when they retire? Oh, I'm never going to retire. Well, yeah, one day you are. <laughs> You'll either yeah. retire permanently by dying or, or your health <laughs> or other reasons, right? So what are you going to wake up looking forward to? Where's your happiness going to come from? Yeah. So relationships, I've never experienced this. So maybe, yeah, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think you could be a multi-multi-billionaire. But if no one cares that you're on your deathbed, what kind of life is that? How happy yeah. are you going to be? So all the things that you look to or that I look to for happiness to, you know, make me feel good, uh, they're gone. What do I have left? Well, we have a relationship with ourselves. We have a relationship with other people. Those are the two key factors. So isn't the relationship with yourself partly informed by the meaning that I attach to what I do in my life? If I'm doing something like you and I do that gives us a lot of meaning, I, I love working with people and exposing yep. them to new concepts. I have meaning in my life. So therefore, I feel like I have a little bit more joy than the person who charges mm -hmm. to work and they hate what they do. Does meaning at work reflect back into happiness or are they two totally different things? I, I think they do connect and they do, do do reflect. You know, fit in a job is important. You know that in sales. You could have a salesperson in the wrong sales job and they struggle. They get in the right sales job and they really just sell the heck out of everything. So I'm not saying that work is not a component of what makes it easier to be happy. And by the way, I define happiness as any form or level of positive emotional energy. So anything that feels good to us in terms of emotions, I would include that under happiness. And so if we're doing something really meaningful to us, yes, then that, you know, is going to be helpful. However, and I think it was Martin Luther uh, King that said, you know, all work has dignity, something of that nature. And, and, and I believe that. I'm not saying it, it, it's easy maybe to practice, but we're the ones that determine what something means. Yes, not the yes. external job. So if we can approach anything as, you know, this has some noble aspects to it, work is noble. And, you know, as long as I'm able to do something to contribute in some way, whatever that is, I'm going to say that that's significant, then we're not going to be depressed. We're not going to be miserable. 
Alan, it's been a great conversation. I've been speaking with Alan Allard today. You can find out more about him, Alan, A-L-A-N-A-L-L-A-R-D.com. And uh, you can check him out on Amazon. He's, uh, the book is Seven Secrets to Enlightened Happiness. And uh, Alan, let's do this again. I think um, this has been good. I, I've learned quite a bit of taking some notes here. And I think the whole topic of just becoming more aware of our psychology, our mind works, happiness and joy in the workplace it just sometimes i feel like people just see happiness and joy as something totally different i do that from five at night till 10 o'clock so you're spending two thousand hours a year sixty thousand hours of your life at something right. that doesn't bring you joy that doesn't feel like a good picture so no yeah. that that doesn't yeah i would love to, i would love to talk again because yeah there's so much uh, to talk about as to how we can not only be more successful but uh, love our lives in the process thank you alan thank you bill